when I was still living in Pennsylvania, I was shopping one day in the supermarket and I was wearing my clerical collar. Now, bagging my groceries that day was a small, cheerful and very talkative woman. It's always refreshing to see someone enjoying their work, and she was certainly enjoying her work, chatting away to the bagger at the next checkout about nothing in particular. Actually, it was about something in particular. It was about makeup. And I made some knee-jerk and not very flattering assumptions about her. As I was digging through my wallet for my loyalty card, she glanced up at me and saw my collar. She smiled and said, Ooh, I see your collar. I'm waiting for the rapture. And I'm thinking, oh no, she's a Christian. (laughs) And not a normal Christian, but one of those Christians. She clearly has no idea how to interpret the Bible. If she did, she wouldn't believe in the rapture. She probably got this from some wacky TV evangelist. It's obvious she has a low IQ and a simplistic faith. And now she wants to have a discussion with me, the Reverend Dr. Johnston, (laughs) at the checkout about eschatology. That's the theology of the last things. So, I gather from your mention of the rapture that you subscribe to the doctrine of premillennial dispensationalism, a theory based on a shaky interpretation of 1 Thessalonians 4.17. I think you'll find amillennialism much more satisfying. Did you really want to discuss eschatology, or were you just making small talk? But before I could even think any of that, let alone say it, she cleared her throat and continued, I lost my husband in November. I can't wait to see him again. For we do not grieve like those who have no hope. So I did what everyone in my situation would do. I went back to my car, loaded my groceries then sat in the driver's seat and wept. Wept for my shallowness. That God had picked a simple woman who probably did not complete high school, whose theology was not learned at the feet of reputable scholars, to speak to me about hope and my pride and simple, life-giving, energising, transforming faith. Because the mess God cleaned up that afternoon was not in aisle five, but in me. One moment, you can be comforting yourself with thoughts of your superiority. The next, you can be groveling in the ashes of your ego. One minute, you can be sitting in a cave with Jesus, listening to him congratulate you on naming him as the Messiah, and telling you that on the rock of your words he would build his church, and the next, he's barking at you, get behind me, Satan. Welcome to the town of Caesarea Philippi, and to the rise and fall of Peter. He'd been plain old Simon until that day in Caesarea Philippi. A good, honest name, but it couldn't compete with the grandeur of his new one. Peter, the rock, 
bestowed on him as a reward for identifying Jesus as the Messiah. But if Peter felt any glory in winning Jesus' What's My Line quiz show, he quickly snatched defeat from the jaws of victory. When you think of rebukes, you probably don't get much more severe than get behind me, Satan. You may have been told off by parents or teachers or even by a judge, but I bet none of them ever called you Satan. So what on earth should bring such a frightening telling off from the lips of Jesus? Peter's expectations, that's what. How he thought God would show his authority or actually throw his weight around is a better way of putting it. Peter follows up his most exquisite confession of the lordship of Jesus by showing just how little he understands of God's ways, God's plans and God's heart. Jesus begins to explain that he must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the religious leaders and be killed but for Peter this is tantamount to calling God a weakling there is no place in God's kingdom thinks Peter for weakness for suffering for Jesus dying on a cross a helpless powerless victim Christ's kingdom would come through violence coercion, brute force. The rule of God would rise up from the streets of oppression, would take up arms and resist the tyrant, would overthrow the Roman forces. God's valiant brave hearts would triumph through oceans of blood being shed and legions of lives being lost. That is how God's agenda would be advanced, how God's kingdom would come. And in saying this, he was merely previewing later times and leaders who believed the same thing. The kingdom of God will come by military conquest. It was wrong in Peter's time, the Crusaders' time, and our time. On the face of it, Peter was simply being a good, loyal friend. Jesus predicts his death, and Peter responds, No, no, Master, that will never happen. We won't let you be taken and killed. Yet, it forced from Jesus the sort of rebuke that echoes through the millennia and warns all of us who think we know better than God how goodness will reign, how justice will rule, how the kingdom of God will come. It's not by a show of military force, the taking of human life, the myth of redemptive violence, but the sacrifice of Christ. The choice of the innocent to lay down his life. It must have been something in the water. Caesarea Philippi. It's no coincidence that it happened there. Now, just the mention of the first part of that name, Caesarea, jerks us out of our comfort. Because we know about the Caesars, don't we? We've heard all about their brutal empire, their insatiable lust for land, wealth and glory, their enslavement of conquered peoples, their sick entertainment involving lions and Christians. 
We know that they invented a method of killing people, crucifixion, that is still perhaps the most sadistic form of execution ever hatched by depraved minds. Caesar has a lot to answer for. His reputation chills us as surely as it chilled Jesus and the twelve chatting in that cave. But the second word in Caesarea Philippi isn't any more comforting than the first. At the time of Jesus, the local puppet ruler, Philip, enlarged Caesarea and named it after himself in that quaint way that despots tend to do. So when Jesus and the twelve sit in Caesarea Philippi, they are striding into a partnership between Caesar and Philip, between Roman emperor and the local puppet ruler. Caesarea Philippi reeked of power, the kind of power that glints on the edge of a sword, is enforced by blood-curdling threats and preserved by state-sponsored terrorism. That is the backdrop to this conversation about the identity of Jesus and the nature of his authority. Caesarea Philippi had got into Peter's heart. Caesarea Philippi will do that. You will be wanting to go the way of Christ, but Caesarea Philippi will tell you to cut corners, to take the easy route, to bend rules and ignore your conscience. Caesarea Philippi will tell you that sacrifice, humility and waiting patiently for God will result in pain and suffering. So better assert your will, grab the power and use force if necessary. Where is your Caesarea? What stage will you walk onto tomorrow? Down what corridors of power will you step? Caesarea is everywhere that says Caesar is Lord and Jesus is not. It is everywhere that says power is Lord and Jesus is not. It is everywhere that says domination, exploitation and manipulation are Lord and Jesus is not. Caesarea is the place you will go that says money or career or success are the truly important things in life and your faith in Christ is not. Jesus asks us, as he asked Peter, who do you say that I am? And in the shadow of the emperor's garrison, how do we answer? We will give our answer by not merely saying Jesus is Messiah, but showing it in our lives. Being generous when Caesarea is interested only in itself. Forgiving when Caesarea seeks revenge. Speaking the truth when Caesarea bends it. Comforting the broken when Caesarea neglects their wounds. Building people up when Caesarea seeks to gossip and destroy. Giving praise when Caesarea wants only to complain and criticise. You may not wish it, you may resist my suggestion, the thought might scare you stiff, but you are powerful. Power is the ability to get what you want. Obviously, people with suits and uniforms, initials after their names and titles before them, possess power, but so do the rest of us. 
We have power over members of our family and our friends. We have power over workmates, neighbours, customers, fellow church members. In fact, if you have any kind of relationship with any sort of person, you have power over them. The power to bless and the power to wound. So the crucial question for Peter and for us is how are you going to use it? Now sure, we can exert force, make threats, inflict pain, manipulate, coerce, rage, be stubborn. This is the kind of power that intimidates, dominates, subjugates. It disdains negotiation, it spurns consultation. It will not tolerate resistance, put up with opposition or yield to compromise. That is the human empire, it's ancient Rome, it's Caesarea, and it's what Peter instinctively turned to when Jesus told him that the Christ must suffer and be killed. This is hard power. The way of Jesus is the way of the cross, the way of self-denial. The way that acknowledges our need, then seeks its remedy, not by brute force, but by humble service. This is soft power. It is the power to change minds and influence hearts by grace, by love, by respecting the dignity of other people, by sacrifice, by gentleness, by laying down your life. And that is how Jesus lived. It is how God reconciled the world to himself on a cross. Two sentences from the lips of Jesus are an ice bucket challenge to all of us who occupy the throne of Pharisees. We who look down on the unholy, the unlearned, the unsophisticated, the uncool, the unenviable... The supermarket bagger. They jolt us into reassessing our criteria for success. In these two shocking phrases, these 49 alarming words, the one who sees deep into our hearts turns the world on its head. Or is it the right way up? If any want to become my followers... Let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake and the sake of the gospel will save it. Success in this life is not measured by dollar signs, zip code or square footage. It is not assessed by MPH, IQ or credit score. Trophies of gold may glint in the sun and medals on ribbons may win you applause, but these are not the marks of Christ's Olympian success. The means of victory is the means of death. The way to win is the way to lose. The path to life is the steep and rugged track that leads to a cross. It's no wonder that Peter took Jesus aside and told him off. For this is crazy talk under the shadow of Caesarea Philippi. Hard power, 
soft power, Caesar's power, Jesus' power. Power that grows from the barrel of a gun. Power that flows from the raising of a cross. May we, this Lent, this week, this day, be filled with the courage and resolve we need to clasp it firmly, lean into it, lift it to our shoulders, and walk the way of Jesus. Amen.